0: This is Karen Hunter and welcome to the hub <laughs> all right welcome to in class with great Car dr. great Carr uh, thank you for being here as always I'm blah 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 all right
1: <laughs> no, good to see you good to see oh, you oh. president how you doing everything's oh. good.
0: Everything's good and I'm excited. You know, I love, I look forward to Saturdays the way I think a lot of people do because I, you know, it, it's tough to have these kind of conversations with people every day. And I get to talk to you on a Saturday
1: once and a same week. Same here. Same here, we get to process. That's right.
0: All right. So we've got
1: something going in the momentum. It's summertime. Summer's coming to an end. Children are coming back to school. And we'll just keep this up. We we'll just flow right into our Saturday school. I'm and glad I said- everybody is enjoying it.
0: Me too, um, and when we go live again in September, top of September, uh, yeah. I'm, so, so this is gonna be a drumbeat leading up to that. Okay. All right, so I see the top of your shirt, like who? Yes. Who, oh,
1: I, I was, oh, okay,
0: this, hey, Harriet.
1: Harriet Tubman, yes. This is from the Harriet Tubman home, 180 South Street, Auburn, New York. Um, Araminta, that was her African name, West African name. Um, Araminta Harriet Ross Tubman uh, from the Eastern Shore, Maryland. Uh, actually bought this at the home that sits on the land that she purchased. She was a member of the Amy Zion Church. She raised money. People gave her money. And she purchased a piece of property. She did what uh, Sojourner Truth, formerly known as Isabella from upstate New York, did in Battle Creek, Michigan. They bought property to, for Africans who had been enslaved. And they almost it, referred it, it like a retirement home. They said, y'all have worked your whole lives. Come." Harriet Tubman actually moved her parents there. Her parents lived there at the retirement home. And then she lived there. Uh, she's buried not far from there. Every summer, uh, people make pilgrimages to this. I-, I went for a number of years in a row, we take train in the Buffalo and ride over. And it really is a remarkable ritual of return. People come from all over, they have speeches, they give tours of the ground. Then we go to the grave site. There's a sister who is a Harriet Tubman kind of reenactor. She's possessed with the spirit, of Harriet Tubman. she comes out. It's really something. And um. You know, talking before we we started live, um, started recording. uh, uh, There's there were a bunch of school children who came up one year. I wasn't there for this, but I heard about it later. These school children did a field trip from the city, uh, and I'm wondering maybe you maybe even covered this uh, in your newspaper days. They were elementary school age children. They did they did a tour, and uh, the the people were talking, and they found out that Harriet Tubman. Uh, not only because we know that there were no women in the military at the time, General Tubman, as they called her, John Brown, and them, uh, she directed troops in battle. She showed them where to attack <laughs> there on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. But she wasn't a member of the regular military. Now her husband was, uh, and but she never got to what they called the widower's pension. She never got her money from the federal government. So these schoolchildren came back to the city and wrote their senator. The junior senator at the time was Hillary Rodham Clinton. Hillary Clinton got Harriet Tubman's money, and that money was sent to the Harriet Tubman home to support the uh-huh. Harriet Tubman, but it was school children. I mean, just to tell you, it doesn't really matter what age you are. When you get information, you can go into action. These little children, it's like, wait a minute, wait, you need to run Harriet Tubman her cat. <laughs> Come on, Senator. We, yeah. My mom voted yeah. for you, and, and that's how you use it.
0: Which, you know, um, and and again, I I had a bunch of stuff that I wanted to talk to you about because we haven't really, you and I haven't spoken since Kamala Harris was selected as Joe Biden's um, vice president. Uh, But it kind of segues two things I want to talk to you about today, literally today, the 15th of August is uh, the anniversary of the incorporation of Eatonville, Florida which, you know, the great Zora Neale Hurston wrote about and their eyes were watching God. And I think it is the first, one of the first incorporated black towns in America. And I wanted to just say, ah, hey, uh, because as I I tweeted out what Africans have done, Africans can do. And from Eatonville to Weeksville to Rosewood to Greenwood to to Seneca Falls, you know, we can keep going. Black people have always without resources, government help, what have you, figured out how to come together around collective work and that's build right. our own havens that's yeah. right so so i just want to just remind us if you are living somewhere right now it's your responsibility to make that town into something that people can be proud of and that's we have
1: exactly always right. done. so that that's exactly and we have been in florida of course well the africans who were caught up in enslavement go back to the um oh where are okay. we no, are they, okay right. i don't know what that was a bit Say a liar. Who, yeah, not saying liar, yes, is a liar. That's right. He's lying a lot these days. <laughs> but the the Africans who uh, were enslaved by Europeans, uh, of course, came into Spanish Florida uh, almost a century before uh, they came into British North America. That 1619 date. And those early settlements, uh, Fort Mose, uh, then later the Negro Fort. You know, these Africans and Native Americans beaten back Andrew Jackson and them. But edenville really has that feel and that essence of Black self-determination that Africans brought with them uh, in the 16th century. To, to, and so it's very important to, to mention that as well. And and I love that you tweeted that out because I mean, I, I can hear echoes of Marcus Garvey, whose birthday is the 17th of August. You know, he said, what people have done, people can do. So y- y'all acting like we can't do it. And, 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 and interestingly enough, we do do it. These are the Black spaces in the, I mean, we talked about Tulsa a while ago. we talked about any number of places, the sections in uh, in North Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina, other places. We can control what we can control. And as we expand our control over other institutions, we can control that little space we're in. And sometimes that space is as small as just the space that it takes for us to sit and think and talk and discuss. This is a space we control. But Eatonville does is symbolic of that. And of course, finally, Zorna Hurston, very interesting. Um, After Brown versus Board of Education, Zora Hurston uh, wrote uh, an opinion piece, really, where she said, you know, I don't know. You know, we have to have equality under the law, but I don't know if this integration thing is going to be the best thing for our children. And she caught a lot of heat from that, (laughs) that, from uh, what she might call the N-word (laughs) audit. In other words, these bourgeois Negroes. oh, you're. she said, I'm from the folk. I'm from the people. I know what it looks like when we're in control. We need resources for sure, but I don't know about giving up the education of our children to other people. Why do you trust these people? Have you not lived? Have you not read Tell My Horse or Mules and Men or The Eyes of Watching God or anything I've written? Or, you know, when I, when I went down to the Caribbean and to Louisiana dealing with these Bodoom people and all these communities. No, our culture is fine. <laughs> the culture is not the problem. The problem is the resources. But of course, that all comes from being raised in a community where the people in control look like her.
0: Mm. And I think that's a nice segment because there's a lot of uh, battle right now over this political cycle that we're in. And, you know, I, I hate this line drawn in the sand where it's either or. You know, Zora Neale Hurston is right. The people who feel like we have to work with power, they're also right. The people, sure. who you know, understand the political process. Why can't we do all of these things and hush as it relates to all of the public discourse and dissension i just i'm the, the frustration it's like we get it yes reparations yes how do you get reparations is it a law dr carr you got a law degree would reparations have to be codified as some sort of government entity to disperse this money
1: not okay. necessarily okay. Let, let me right. see Let's if i can uh hold on for a second all right. so get <laughs> i don't know if i can get over here in time because if i can i try to keep my reparations stuff right. in one place but uh-huh. there are so many books over the years. I mean, there are literally dozens of books on reparations, not to mention all the other literature. Um, this is a book called Black Manifesto. <laughs> this is a, uh, yeah, I left the hardback over there. This is my working copy. Um, got a working copy. Yeah, I had, oh, you had to have a working copy because you got to, you know, I don't want to, re- this is very interesting because what happened was James Forman, of course, who had one time executive director of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, called for a uh, Black Economic Development Conference. He was, he was at the Black Economic Development Conference. He busted up in Riverside Church and told the, the white, he said, you white Christians need to give us some money because you owe us reparations because you not only participated in the slave trade, you blessed it. And the churches got together a fund and did indeed pump some money into some economic development programs. It's very interesting because you can see the table of contents. Um, Dick Gregory is talking in here. Stephen Rose is talking in here. You can see what is the responsibility of the church. What is the responsibility? Of, I mean, this, this is from 1969, so this isn't a government-initiated. Okay. They said we're just going to go for institutions.
0: So when and people it, say, so when people say, you know, I'm not voting unless we have reparations, and I listen, you're perfectly within your right to say whatever you want to say. We're free human beings. The the. Sophistication of that thought, right? So if if you're withholding your vote unless reparations on the table, and then you don't vote, and then you ensure the election of somebody who is absolutely not <laughs> caring about your life, like how do you? If, if you're you're hinging your vote on a reparations thing, you're saying that I I I believe government has to give us what's due, right? So right. you're putting your faith in a governmental system, which I don't have any faith in, by the way which is why I don't, I don't have this discussion because I don't have any faith that these people are gonna do something for me without being forced to. And me withholding a vote is not forcing them to do anything. If anything, it's the opposite. So I just, I'm just, I just wanna navigate this intellectually, maybe a little bit spiritually, historically, like what is it, in, and then Kamala, not Kamala, Biden, not Biden, like, how should we be looking at this, Dr. Carl?
1: Well, I mean, well, I mean, we, we, we know. We should be looking at it as people with a developed agenda and political philosophy. In other words, politics is just a tool, and you know it's no different than anything else. When Foreman and this crew goes up and, and rush, rushes up on the white church, they're saying this is an institution that we're going to go after. The, some of the early reparations lawsuits—about early, I mean—in the modern reparations movement, I'm talking about now, the 1970s and 80s—they were lawsuits that targeted white corporations, you know, white insurance companies. You know, but I say, you know, you all insured the votes. I mean, in, in other words, it's so Deidre Knight Pullum, um, uh, my friend Ajo Ajo Toro, uh, the great inkichi Taifa, who is really the subject. Of, in fact, her, this is her new book. I wrote the foreword for It's called Black Power, Black Lawyer. It, it isn't out yet. In fact, this is just the flyer for it. But Nkechi, uh-huh. it's a bad sister right here. Yeah, I, mean, I love to hear the two of y'all talk. I love this sister right here. She doesn't be Taifa, I mean, There's a whole litigation strategy. So, I mean, you know, later on, we start talking about the kind of people now who are popularizing reparations and everybody is welcome. We need every voice. But let's be very clear. This thing didn't start in 2016, 2017. And so there's the legal strategy going at corporate. And then there is the idea that while we're doing and this is very important. There are two dimensions of reparations because repair is is at the core of it one is the demand the external demand and in that external demand you use every tool you have politicians sheila jackson lee took the ball from john conyers hr 40 has passed the house of representatives got to flip the senate to get it there and maybe get a democratic president that's why you vote if you want reparations and you want to use politics as a tool at the federal level you need to do that meanwhile there are uh, folks i forget the sister's name now she is on the city council in evanston illinois they she was able to leverage her political weight on that council to get the, the town of Evanston, Illinois—that's where Northwestern is, basically North Side Chicago—to devote a percentage of the sales, the revenue from the legal sale of marijuana, for reparations to people in Evanston. In other words, there are local, there are there are reparations resolutions that have been passed in Chicago and Philadelphia and other places, and so.
0: That's Robin the, Robin Rue Simmons, I think. Yes. In, yeah, city council. You see her?
1: I look it Absolutely. up. Absolutely. I, yes. I saw her uh, a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Incobra Conference, the uh, National Coalition of Blacks of in Reparations in America, which is the oldest reparations organization founded in the late 1980s. She came and talked about it because she's been working with Incobra folks. That, again, is why it's important to have institutions that exist outside of individuals' relationships with white institutions. It's good to have brilliant people doing research and talk. But if you don't have an organization, if you don't have a base to work from, then you don't have conversations like we're having. You're not able to organize, and then you're not able to sit at the table and say, okay, uh, we're gonna endorse somebody, not endorse somebody. Okay, what do we value? Okay, are we gonna talk to the churches? We're gonna talk to the corporations? Okay, what are our values? So all those avenues are just different routes, but the thing that binds them together is us being in conversation. That's why people don't understand that the reparations movement has relied on organized efforts. The Illinois Slave Trade Commission, there's an international dimension. Uh, the, um, Ron Daniels chairs the NARC, National African American Reparations Coalition, but there's an international dimension. Uh, Sir Hillary Beckles out of the Caribbean is the point man for CARICOM, the Caribbean community. Uh, we were going to go to South Africa for the World Conference Against Racism, where reparations on the table, 9-11, 2001 jumped off. It's crazy. Right at the same time. But but that was preceded by a meeting in Abuja, Nigeria, uh, Time Mashoud Abiola, uh, Jacob Carruthers, one of my Jekna's mentors, was there, presented a paper. The reparations movement is an international movement, and so it's being narrated now in America in a way to kind of get us to talk about domestic reparations, and that is not unintentional, because our progress anywhere in the world has never come, uh, it's come more quickly when we have been linked internationally. Because what these folks understand is they are linked internationally, finance capital, political leaders. But when black people or indigenous folks or other began to look beyond the borders, they tell them, no, 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 hold on, hold on. You need to look to us individually in this relationship. Oh no, 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 Mm -hmm. no, no. So reparations is not, reparations is really not a, uh, that, that that that's kinda of, saying so yeah, politics just the
0: two. So this is a fluid conversation. And as you're talking, I think about, you know, Bilderberg, I think about the meeting. I think about that meeting where they decided to divvy up Africa, right? And the Belgians got the Congo and the British got the this and they, they always they understand collective work. Yes. Cooperation. And they literally met to divvy up Africa which is why Senegal speaks French and Ghana speaks English. And these people speak German and South Africa speak Dutch or a version of it. They divvy up a continent because they met around a common ideal and a common goal. And so it is counterproductive, you know, even if you're following the model to to divide and conquer, especially around this, this thing called nationality. And I bring up Kamala because, you know, her father's Jamaican, her mother's Indian, she's not black. We had this conversation where we were talking about who we wanted, who we didn't, and I didn't think that she would be a good pick for him because of everything that's happening right now. But let's just be clear. Shirley Chisholm is from the West Indies. Stokely Carmichael is from the West Indies. Malcolm X's mama is from the West Indies. Farrakhan is from the West Indies. All the people that, Marcus Garvey, it's from the West, and so if we are in K- Chroma, from Nkrumah to Heli Selassie, whatever it is that you value, you know, and if you love Harry Belafonte, you know, say what you want about him. The man has been a soldier and a warrior for all of the 90 years plus he's been on this earth. How do we get here, Doc? Like what, what, what's the game in, in this? And, I, and, and let's just be clear. We both understand that reparations, if it's to come, should come to those who are descended from here. Just like Haitian reparations should come to people who are from France, you know, and the, the Spanish should pay reparations to the people in Dominican Republic and other Spanish places speaking with black people. I get that. We, we understand intellectually, this is not to be debated.
1: Nope.
0: Well, what's not the not. thing in, in, in this whole move to tell people who's black and who's not? Well, how does that work for us? I just, I just need to understand intellectually, how does that work for us?
1: It's, it's propaganda, and it's deliberate. And let's be very clear. Uh, I like something Haki Mahaboodi said many years ago. Uh, he, he's written in a number of different places. I don't know whether I read it first in his book on Black men or Earthquakes and Sunrise Missions from Plan to Planet. One of them, he said, you know, conspiracies are not things that everybody is involved in. They have a big meeting in a smoke-filled room, get the plan, and go out and execute it. He said, no. Conspiracies unfold over centuries, and they often involve tiny groups of people. So when you talk about the Berlin Conference, for example, nobody in Europe was involved in the Berlin Conference except the leaders of the countries and these economic interests, and they didn't always agree. So if you're just a rank and file person going to the mine, a Welsh miner, or if you're a woman uh, you know, taking in laundry in, uh, in Wales, you're not involved in the Berlin Conference. But you never stop to think, where did the fabric that I'm washing come from? You know, Welsh miners say I'm digging this coal out, but what is this coal being used to power? Is it, I mean, so people understand, we're not talking about all the people in the world. In fact, we're not talking about most of the people in the world. We're talking about individuals who, in a, particularly a hyper-capitalist system, are at the top of that system trying to figure out how to not only maintain control, but to extend their power. And so everybody gets caught up in it because as a result of that planning, as a result of that coming together and fighting and jostling, and, I mean, what happens is we all get pulled into that system. So we got pulled into a system that, that we think of as countries or nation states. You know, Basil Davidson many years ago, the white British Africanist, uh, kind of popularized African history, he wrote a book called uh, the, Africa, the curse of the nation state. And the whole idea we could say, well, there are 54, 55 countries in Africa, no. Those are artificial lines that were, that were traced out of former colonies that were traced in order to extract resources. Those are not the people. I mean, we talk about this all the time in, in class. You know, we start class in a couple of weeks. I mean, the central theme in human history is migration. People move. And you know, there's an interesting book. I got it over here. Yeah, There's an interesting book by Stephen Smith that just came out called The Scramble for Europe. This is a very interesting book. Stephen Smith. Uh, is at Duke University, but he was a journalist. He's in, he's, in, he's in one of your crafts. He he worked for years at Liberation and Le Mans. And he wrote this book. This book came out, I wanna say it came out this year. Did it come, no, last year, 2019. Check this out. He says, he, he notes this, 40% of the population of Africa is under 15 years old. We're talking about a billion and a half people. Under 15 years old. Just think about that. Then he says, now, Right now, there are about 510 million people inside the European Union borders, all those countries, 510 million, including all of us who are up there. Right? And they, he says, and there are about 1.25 billion people in Africa. Now, here it is. In 2050, now, projections are correct. It's going to be sooner than that. In this country, the majority of people in this country are not going to be white. But check this out. In 2050, he says, they're going to be about, they, they, the Democrats is saying, maybe there'll be about 450 million people in Europe. That's less, that's 60 million people less, but they're gonna be 2.5 billion people in Africa. What he's predicting is the Africans are gonna move into Europe, even it's not gonna diminish anybody in Africa. He's saying Europe could be a quarter black by 2050. Now, what does that mean? He's saying, but if you go back to the 19th century, he said, when you go back to the 19th, and this is what's fascinating about it. You go back to the 19th century, you will see, that by the end of the 19th century, only about 2% of Europeans were in Africa, meaning they didn't move in large numbers to West Africa. You know, they couldn't get in there in the mid-19th century because they were getting killed. Malaria was wiping them out. They caught the white man's grave. Southern Africa, that's where Cecil Rhodes was. And again, all the white people don't agree. Cecil Rhodes was down there. He's British. He's beefing with the white boys. He went down there earlier with those Dutch you mentioned, the Afrikaners, and they got an Anglo Boer War that breaks out in the end of the 19th century. So all the white people don't agree. We got to stop thinking like, like all the white people agree. But what, he, what Smith notes is they never colonized Africa demographically, they just extracted resources. And then you pull all of us out the children of Africa, and fling us across the Atlantic Ocean, fling us across the Indian Ocean, and what have you done inadvertently? You've now created an African diaspora that's got almost as many people now as are in the continent of Africa right now. So what you created is a recipe, if we can begin to think differently, for connecting ourselves around culture, around common political interests, economic interests. Again, we're not the same people, but we are deeply connected in terms of a common point of origin, and over the years we've seen, when we come together politically and economically, even if it's just on issue-by-issue things. We all don't do this, but this thing we can agree on. We see it all of a sudden transforms everything else. It would be a very different movement, Black Lives Matter, in this country if, say, for example, the continent of Africa and the African Union said there are going to be some consequences to trade policy between the United States and the members and states of the African Union. If you do not all immediately address police brutality in the United States, that would send a shockwave through now. All the racists would rant and trump and them. I'm telling you, who else would scream bloody murder? Probably Joe Biden and probably uh Susan Rice, because you know Susan Rice had a hand in everything from the Rwanda genocide to the destabilization of Libya. So they might scream a little nationalist kind, but the rest of us is like that's cute, Your tools, we don't care, you know, Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, I read an article, I'm sure you've been reading the same thing the last couple of days. The Indian diaspora here in the United States is now being energized. And you see this, the subtle shift in language, because her father, brilliant economist, still alive, Donald Harris, Stanford University, uh, in his early days, he kind of tried to label him a Marxist, very brilliant brother writing about uh policy of economic development particularly in his his native jamaica his 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 his, her mother of course a research scientist of her own that's why she ended up in canada for a few years she got a research fellowship you know we think of her as black and she is black and she's also indian now the indian diaspora is beginning to say oh yeah we're very proud of kamala harris but think about how we think about indians India is the world's biggest democracy, even though they got a Trump over there named Modi, who is raising, him, who's doing all kind of crazy stuff. But when we think about India, we don't think about Indians in the United States as being completely truncated and separated from their home country. When we think of African people in the United States, we trace our point of origin, not to Africa. We talk about it, but we really don't. We trace our point of origin to a boat and some water utterly absurd, which means that caste, which is what Isabel Wilkerson, you know, her book just came out. uh, It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Isabel Wilkerson said, you know, caste is the bones of a society, race is the skin of a society, and class is the clothes that people wear. Meaning what? Once you are in a caste, in a society, it's very difficult to get out. By cutting ourselves off from international connections, Black folk in America become part of a permanent undercast. And the only way we get her out is to try to negotiate to move up and down in the cast. And what we've seen is it only happens in drips and drabs, which is why Kamala Harris is saying, oh, yeah, she's breaking these glass ceilings. And yes, yeah, she is. And she's the first person to be on a ticket. So, well, Shirley Chisholm ran for president. Let's go look at Shirley Chisholm. Because you know what I did. I'm starting what to do do? so, look around not. at the stuff I have here. And I pulled out, there, is, uh, there was, a, there was a, um, a journal that Mervyn Diamondly out of, out, of, out of California, one of the early members of the Black, black Congress, found it called The Black Politician. Mm. <laughs> Very interesting. And this, uh, this Wait, actually- pe- We can't get that book. I already know. No, nah, but we can scan it. I mean, you know, I believe we got to have information, right? This is from the huh? summer of 1907. Ju- Julius Hobson, who, was, who voted, did voting rights in D.C., Julius Hobson actually ran for vice president um, and Benjamin Spock, remember when Benjamin Spock ran for president, uh, was 68 or 72 or something, uh, 68 I think it was, Julius Hobson ran for vice president. So I'm looking at these people on CNN, thinking they cute, you know, these black folks get on and say, oh, you know, she isn't the first, she isn't the first person to run, the first first person to run, and this is true, out Carlotta Bass, again, another member of your one of your crafts, the great journalist out of the West Coast, California Eagle, she was indeed, her name was put in nomination for vice president, and then, but then somebody said, well, you know, she is the first, To uh, to run for vice president uh, to be on on a on a ticket uh, who graduated from HBCU yeah Julius Hobson graduated from Tuskegee y'all should do a little bit of research before you get on just say the first person from a major party and I mean don't you know because people such in a rush to but my point is she's one person you can't pin your hopes on one person what happened since Dumbly them put together the black politician and now is that black politicians have moved largely from individuals who were expected to represent their constituency. Charles Diggs out of Michigan, uh, uh, John Conyers out of Michigan, you know, earlier than that in the 1930s, Oscar De priest, Arthur Mitchell out of Chicago, the great Adam Clayton Powell out of Harlem, who said, I am black America's Congressman. And you're supposed to represent the people. It moved from that to individuals who, when they attain some achievement, we project onto them, the group uh, agenda. No, they never said, they represent the black community anymore. This is this, this, this the trick bag we got caught up in with Obama. But the reason I bring this up is because in this issue, summer of 1971, issued a black politician, Shirley Chisholm, as you say, whose folk came from Barbados and Guyana, I think. Shirley Chisholm, Brooklyn, you know, the People's Republic of Brooklyn. Brooklyn Shirley Chisholm wrote, writes an essay called The Role of the Black University. And it's very, I was rereading this the other day because Shirley Chisholm says, in order for us to make progress, we're going to have to come together, love each other, think differently, and move as a group. Now, did Shirley, and she said at these universities, at these, particularly at black universities, You've got to be a Black university. It's very interesting. She says Black universities can lead in the recovery of recreation of Black culture, history, art, and tradition. It should be a center for the study of non-white cultures, a source of vitality. She said Black universities should be organized around solving problems that affect our people. She was unashamed about that. Now, this is 1971. Remember, they met in 1972 in Gary, Indiana, for the National Black Co- Political Convention. There's a very good small book on this by a brother named The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights and the mm-hmm. National Black Political Convention of 1972. It's a very interesting book this brother right here, Gerald Moore, wrote. And you know, I don't, I never, I don't like the title because I'm like, I'm Black. We want power. We still live. We talk about the defeat of Black power. What he's really talking about is the fact that the Gary Convention, which I encourage everybody to really study, that. Is the high water mark coming out of the 1960s, the, the the mass movement that really wasn't led by politicians, which is why one of the things that you know uh, Adam Clayton Powell didn't like about King and them. Powell was like, "Who elected King? No, nah, bro. You know, we make we. You're a politician and you for us, but our people in the streets and they. Those things have to work together. Well, coming out of that movement into night in the 19s, into the 1970s after the Voting Rights Act has been passed. They Decide, can we get together and get a black political agenda? We need the politicians, so the congressional black caucus people come. Do we, we need the black nationalists? Barack and them are there, Jesse Jackson is there, Queen Mother Moore reparations. Queen Mother Audley Moore. Yeah, you know, I'm reading, yeah, I've been reading these books and people have now discovered Queen Mother Moore. And I love it when like young people who are writing their first books and stuff like that say that this is a person who is invisible. I knew Audley Moore. A lot of people did. Don't say people, just say you didn't know about it. Anyway. Queen Mother Moore is at the reparation. Everybody's there in the same room. Can we hammer out a black agenda? One person who was not there Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm, this is 1972. Shirley Chisholm is contemplating a run for president. She is the first black woman in the United States Congress. She is standing there at this time, of course, you got the white women's movement. I'll call it the women's movement, let's be clear, Gloria Steinem and them, you know, I mean, she's partnered with Alice Walker and us. So you got some black women around and you mentioned Edenville, of course, the reasons Orinette Hurston has a gravestone is because of Alice Walker. So this ain't no shade on Alice Walker, but I'm saying Gloria Steinem and them have an agenda, Betty Friedan and them have, you know, but in 1972, they're looking at Shirley Chisholm and say, oh, she's representing women. And then Black people say, oh, she's representing Black people. Shirley Chisholm says, I'm a double minority. She writes about it in here. She says, I'm getting heat from all sides, and I'm representing myself for these constituencies. But she doesn't go to Gary, because in the same 1971, when she's writing this about Black university, she goes to a planning meeting for Gary and gives the work to the Stokes brothers out of Cleveland, to these guys, because she got some men with her. Percy Sutton was one of the guys. Percy Sutton said, I'm backing Shirley Chisholm. But these other dudes are like, wait a minute, you just got here, what you talking about? This guy, and remember now, they, after Adam Clayton Powell, they gonna put him out of Congress, he, he gets reelected. But, so Shirley Chisholm is like, I'm not waiting on anybody. So she had that, you know, she was an assemblywoman in the state of New York, so she, I'm not coming here taking no back seats, are y'all crazy? And, you know, I'm against the war, I mean, and, and she said, but she said, I don't know if black people can come together because we are two politically different we have to, so what you see is Shirley Chisholm is a very complicated figure. And, and so what happens after 1972, which is why Moore writes his book, The Defeat of Black Power, he says, after 1972, you really see this move by elected officials, particularly at the federal level, kind of away from this notion of a united front group politics because they said he really can't work it out with the black nationalists who are saying, I only know why we're gonna vote, but I'm willing to come to this meeting if we can come together with an agenda. But what's happening is, and in the years since, what has happened is, this is why I mentioned Cedric Johnson's book From Revolutionaries to Race Leaders. What you see is uh, black elected officials appealing to multiracial constituencies, really in the thrall of big money in politics, get further and further away from the idea of a black agenda because they're being pulled by these very powerful forces that say, if you wanna keep this office, we need you to do X, Y, Z. So they fight around the edges, they do what they can do. I think uh, our sister out of California, Karen Bass is an excellent example of that. Karen Bass comes out of that tradition. Karen Bass comes out of the West Coast. Karen Bass is out there. She's a healthcare professional. She's traveled to Cuba. They trained the doctors and nurses in Cuba. Then they made her eat her words to get on the ticket, and then they didn't pick her after that. She's really an activist. Then she runs the California State Assembly. She probably would have been the best pick if Joe Biden was looking for somebody, if he dropped dead, to be the President of the United States. But Karen Bass got a past that's rooted in that community. And so when you see her coming out of Southern California, you see Barbara Lee coming out of the Bay Area, who was yeah. ties back to Ron Dellums, you know. But Ron Dellums was one of the ones Shirley Chisholm was mad at because Dellums didn't endorse her. Because you know, so she blasted Dellums at that meeting in 71. But I'm saying all that to say these are individuals operating in a larger political field where larger, more better organized political and economic forces are saying, I know you came here with your Afro, I know you came here with your Black Power Fist, but you're now in the Congress. So, we're going to need you to moderate that. And if you can't moderate it, we're going to run somebody against you. Ilhan Omar in Minneapolis, who waxed that dude. They pumped all that money and in. And they
0: did that to and, Rashida to live as well.
1: Rashida. And they, and they
0: were even promoting that she was going to lose. You see that? Waxed. Right, yes.
1: Come and, on. And, and then Elliot Engel, who won't even live in New York, Jamal Bowman took him out, cut his whole head off. You know what yes. I'm saying? And then uh, Bush, my man, uh, uh, Cor- that sister Corey Bush in St. Louis, 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 who came out of the streets of Ferguson. She body, uh, Clay, Clay's daddy, is the one who wrote the history of the Congressional Black Caucus. I mean, so I'm just saying, it, but what is happening is, what's happening now in the United States, it's not enough to be Black anymore. Why? Because after 72, when many Black politicians just went to this, I'm Black, which means you've achieved because I got elected. Black people ain't going for that no more. And after them eight years of Obama, Kamala Harris, we love you, sis. We support you. And I'm going to tell you right now, as a member of Alpha by Alpha fraternity, when the first of my family to go to college, when I was student body president at Tennessee State, one of the first things we did, I said, look, ain't nobody wearing no Greek paraphernalia to football games or the pep rallies. Why? Because the vast majority of people on this campus are not members of greek letter organizations. They don't want to overplay this Howard, a.k.a. thing so much. Because y'all got to be real careful. Black people have class tensions, too. So, you know, Kamala really? Harris is cool. Really? Wait,
0: not the car. No. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? I, mean. I mean?
1: come on. Come on, now, y'all don't want I mean. Come on, look. Boulay,
0: Whatever that come, is. See,
1: you see. Look. That? And you blue know that, that's a company. Blue check. Bourgeois. What, what is come on. that? Come on, you don't. Know, and look, the people who you, who you want to get out to vote, the link's coming. The AKA's coming, the Delta, the Panhellenic, they gonna bust, they, I mean, I'm seeing now all my old heads, they raising money, but guess what? They gonna vote. What you need is Nequanelm, Kwame and them, the people looking at it like, what y'all gonna do? We don't give a damn. Obama didn't do nothing for us, so I ain't all voting, right. I don't give a damn, I mean,
0: be real careful about this class. How do you do that though? Okay, so, so this is the question, right? And this yes. is my frustration, because you raised something and we were gonna go down another path, we'll say that for next week. No, we good. But this 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 notion, and you're absolutely right. So I, I posit this, Dr. Carr. Mm. When when did those folk who aren't engaged now because I I feel like the vast majority of people who say they're not gonna vote probably haven't voted. They probably don't vote. They probably wouldn't vote anyway. So this, right. this is just an excuse to not vote, right? That's right. But I could be wrong about that. So I'm I'm good with that. And and there are legitimate issues that people have with Kamala Harris. They're legitimate issues that people have with Joe Biden. But I just make it simple. Are they more problematic than Donald Trump? And I've always arrived to the conclusion that no. Whatever these two people have done does not even come close to what Donald Trump will do with four more years. I know that because I've seen the last three.
1: That's right.
0: This is untenable. I get it. And so I'm just struggling right now to, to get past the rhetoric of the legitimate claims, the legitimate causes, the legitimate problems and issues people have, and the feeling of disrespect. Like, I just don't want to just give you my vote just because. So I've been I've been doing something like, let's not do the Black thing, whether she's Black or not, because it really doesn't matter to me. I mean, it really doesn't matter whether she's Black or not. Not really. We've been voting for white people our whole entire existence outside of Obama. I, I cast a vote for Jesse Jackson in college. was the first person I ever voted me for too. in a primary. Me too. <laughs> you know but since then it was jesse obama that was it so this can't be about that it can't be about indian can't be about whether her granddaddy owned slave it can't like how do we get past the the very legitimate feelings people have to talk about the power that we have to attain to get the things that we say we want there's a process
1: here too late to 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 quote again, you know, uh, William Lacey Clay. Uh, Clay got defeated by Bush in, in, uh, in, 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 in Missouri last week, but qu- quote his father, which was one of the models of the Congressional Black Caucus, we have no permanent friends, only permanent interests. In fact, that's the name of the history of the CBC, the book. We have to think, well, let me not say that because this is a conversation because people think, you know, they, they watching us now, like we giving out marching orders everybody has the capacity to think you can't think of we don't think about life with saying when I was born so and so so therefore today I'm not eating rice no every decision we make <laughs> operates in a larger arc of our experiences but we make indif- we make decisions sequentially the trick is to be able to make better decisions based on the last time we picked something so I mean, let's give a quick example you know Uh, I saw the other day our friend Jason Johnson uh, tweeted something out that said, you know, the reason why uh, Trump controls the post office now is because every time Obama tried to appoint somebody to the board that runs the post office, Bernie Sanders blocked it. It's very true, uh, Brother Johnson. It's also true, Brother Johnson, that the Obama appointees were, were, were nominated with an eye toward privatizing parts of the post office, reducing the days of delivery, shortening In other words, what Bernie Sanders was doing is saying, no, nah, I'm going to stop this neoliberal agenda because you want to sell the post office out. Now, it had the unintended consequences of leaving all those spots open so that when Trump comes in, he can appoint everything, and they are
0: dismantling the post office. But Jason. Johnson- second there, too, because this yeah. is short-sightedness, and this is where arrogance comes in. They never thought Trump could win. And there it is, him. Trump never thought he was gonna win. No. So they were setting up the layup for Hillary Clinton to come in. And that's why they didn't fight for Merrick Garland. Because that's right. they never imagined that come Trump on. would be so so again. Come on. Um let's let's pay attention. Well but this is this is see
1: this is, this is this is exactly what you're talking about. Sequential decision making led Uh, the lack of sequential decision-making led us to where we are. Meaning what? Because I ain't going to vote, nothing ever changes. No, stop talking so broadly. You understand, let's just take the post office again, Sanders holding up those nominees. And then Sanders running for president. And then, in other words, we got to stop them from privatizing. And this can't happen with one speech on the the floor of the Senate. I'm going to stop these in anticipation of building a movement that will be able to put us in a position to make our own. But guess what? All these ain't nothing gonna change people. Didn't vote. So now, like a rock <laughs> coming through the whole plan, Come they on. crashed the structure and a clown who was running as a marketing campaign. That's why I can't I read the preface, the forward to uh Michael, uh what's his name? The lawyer. Cohen. yes, meet Cohen. yes. Cohen's Cohen's book because it ain't out yet. And you know, I, so but he said I know all the bodies, I was like, Man, you but my point is that it's a marketing thing these guys came up with. He backs into The presidency, he didn't win. No, he didn't win. Uh, Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes. No, 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 no. no. He didn't win because they had five damn uh, voting machines in Milwaukee and people got out of line. He didn't win because they threw away ballots in Michigan and Pennsylvania. He didn't win because they stole the election, just like they stole the election in 2000. In other words, enough people voted in those three states to make him lose. But... People, this is where Greg Palast is so important. In fact, oh, I just gosh. got Greg Palast. Yeah. yeah, Greg right. Yes. this is the, how Trump <laughs> stole, t- Greg Palast is no joke. Man. I know another one of your colleagues. This man, he, he just takes it down. My point is this, because Stacey Abrams should be the governor of Georgia, is the governor, the elected governor of Georgia, and my man who got in trouble down there in Florida, he's elected Governor Andrew uh, Gillum. But the point is, if enough people had voted, not only would your mail be coming and your grandma medicine, because they worried about voting and now your grandma don't have her medicine. Why? You put something in the mail today, it might not get to you for a week and a half. If y'all been noticing how this mail, med- and they're picking up the the voting, uh, I'm sorry, the, the mailboxes, oh, the I little blue mailboxes. They're that's literally pulling up. Pulling. So my point is that all that happens because somebody decided nothing changes. I, I'm, not, I'm not gonna vote. No, 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 no. You came crashing down while somebody else like a Sanders, and I'm just naming very Sanders because it's talking about the post office, right. had a strategy that's based on sequential decision-making. And then you come in, hadn't thought about anything in sequence and just bust in because you got in your mind from the time I was born to now, ain't nothing ever changed. And then you deliver this tool to the hands of somebody who is going to destroy you. So now we say, well, you got to go vote for Biden Harris, why? Because at least get us back to Obama. And that, <laughs> in, in words, I mean, at least get us back to where we can organize and right. make them not privatize the post office. Because guess what? When the plague came, I think you got a better chance to get Medicare for all. I don't care if Joe Biden said he against it. I don't care if Kamala Harris co-sponsored the legislation in the Senate to say, yeah, I'll go for Medicare for all, and then ran for president and walked it back. Because them, those donors said, hold on, Kamala, these insurance companies don't like. Okay, fine. What do I need to do? Because I ain't trying to get out of the primary yet. Because I'm a politician. Because I'm a politician. I'm not civil rights leader. I'm not civil rights leader. I'm a politician. But guess what? Let's get them elected, and then they get sworn in. We take our day off. The AKA stroll all around the mall. All the people scream. It's very nice. That's Monday. It's very nice. Tuesday morning, here go two hundred fifty thousand Negroes standing outside your office saying, "I don't care whether you like Medicare or not or not." this is what you're going to sign. Why? Because after we voted for you, we went down ballot and voted for all these other people, and they're going to pass it on both sides of the House. And I don't care when Cigna comes in. I don't care when Blue Cross Blue Shield comes in. I don't care when them people that put all that money into your pocket came in. If you don't sign this legislation, we are going to get a veto-proof majority in the midterm election. I mean, you got to think differently about this because i'm a problem this is the last thing i said this is what i'm kind of i'm not nervous about this now because we got to do things one at a time let's say joe biden serves eight years that would be like saying let's say that the moon will come up instead of the sun and but at any rate because he you know but let's say if he makes four years i'd be surprised but the c gets elected that means harris might be the president before the end of the first term but here's my question do you think Look at what happened after Obama. Do you think who they run next time, they're gonna learn something from Trump? Oh, we can have a whole racist. We just need him to talk a little better. So let's get uh, Tom, wish I was in the land of cotton, coming out of Arkansas. Or let's tune up one of these other racists who's got, who's a little bit more articulate. And we are going to have a white lash in the wake of the first Biden, uh, Harris, four years. We're going to have somebody we think can beat them. And Kamala Harris is brilliant. Kamala Harris is a shrewd politician. Kamala Harris knows how to be on both sides of the issue. People are saying defending her record as a, uh, the district attorney in, in, in San Francisco and the attorney general of California, and they should. And people are uh, critiquing her record in both places, and they should, cause she figured out a way to be on both sides of the issue on most of the things. And anybody want to at me, you probably should read something first. We can have a whole nut conversation about that. Y'all don't, uh, y'all, Jeff, I mean, y'all don't I'm do not it. A technical Don't do scenario. it. Don't it's do it. Just, Africa, she's Canada. a politician. I'm okay. not mad at her. I'm gonna go for it. i was, look. We gotta, we gotta get them in office. But what we saw in her presidential campaign is she didn't run the kind of race that she could win and very quickly it became really in my mind an audition for vice president. She got that. I think she will learn from that. She's presumptive nominee whenever it's not Biden. But if you're going to, if you don't understand that after they do their turn, they are going to come back with the last action hero of white supremacy. And it's not going to be a stumble bomb whose brain is rotting in his skull, Donald Trump. It's going to be
0: somebody who can, so, know, that we would even like, Exactly. It's gonna be someone good looking, articulate, saying all of the right things, hiding, that's and, and right. he's gonna he's gonna look very angelic. As a matter of fact, he's gonna look, look yes. very much like what you think Jesus Christ might look like. Yes, that's,
1: that's exactly he's right. he's gonna
0: be chosen one, and this goes to Revelations. We're gonna have a whole conversation about the Bible and stuff, uh as yes. live in a couple of weeks. But when when you were talking, Doctor Carr, I was just thinking about when you went back to Shirley Chisholm and Ron Dellums and Adam Clayton Powell who couldn't stand this one and that one and Percy Sutton who was backing her and yes. we've had conflict yes. of, of, of leadership from yes. the inception. I, I think of Nanny Helen Burroughs and, and Booker T. Washington. Oh, yeah, But at this point we don't have the, we, we should be astute enough to say she was right and he was right. Because right. without Booker T we don't get George Washington Carver and all of that wonderful work. Without W.B. Du Bois, who didn't like Booker T, who didn't like Marcus Garvey, we wouldn't get all of these wonderful things like Ida B. Wells and some other things. Without Marcus Garvey, we wouldn't have, like we need to be able to, Martin and Malcolm, Shirley and Ron, and, and Adam Clayton Powell, Ron we need to be able to this and, and be astute enough yes. to embrace the things that make sense and not denigrate publicly, at least we can have this off mic conversation. And I think we've had a real trouble with inside conversation and outdoor conversation. This space is unique in the sense that we are having an inside conversation outside, with you and I. Mm -hmm. We're both, I think, a little clever enough to be able to have the inside conversation in a way that is edifying. You know.
1: that's right <laughs> and it's not inside inside it's folks who speaky bodies know we talking about somebody else said what that mean you got speaky bodies to know it ain't inside inside no. but it is it's
0: inside enough that. right but yeah. but there's another layer to this and, and the, my biggest frustration is we can't even have that other layer of conversation conversation excuse me because people have not over the last 30 40 years been conditioned to know how to do that and it's not even code switching it's like this is beneficial that's right we're gonna do is beneficial that's and right. we're not going to telegraph what we're going to actually do, but we just, now we have to That's telegraph. Right. Yes. Wednesday morning, after action election right. on Tuesday, we're going to show up in numbers and make the demands, but we can't be bickering over who's black and who's not, What whether we're going to get this or get that. Put an agenda together, oh! collective uh, ideology on a couple of things, push them down the way other people do, and all the complaints about, oh, the gays got this, and women got that, and what, we didn't ask for anything. Let's make sure we ask for something no. and stop all this nonsense. Let's get there. Because four more years of Trump, if they could that's a mandate. If Trump gets a mandate, y'all want on some bull crap right now. If you don't think it's going to be uh, flowers bringing and slow singing with him with four more years. And I'm Ooh. not saying the, the, the damn sky is falling. I'm just saying I've watched him for 30 years in New York. I've watched yes. him.
1: Yes. No, and I understand, Karen, folks need to hear what you're saying. I mean, we've talked about we keep coming back to voting because this, this is the season for it. And the sky in some ways is falling. You see, we know that, I mean, this ain't on no long conversation, you know. We know that there are three branches of government, you know, judiciary and legislative and the executive. The judiciary is appointed by the executive with the consent and the advice and consent of the legislative. At the state level, the federal level, the federal, well, they're not elected judges, but at the federal level, it's appointment. They have replaced over 200 federal judges in the first four years of this man's term. If they get, again, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is gone. Stephen Breyer is right behind her. They are already filing lawsuits. In fact, you see they lost that affirmative action lawsuit last year. Uh, Ed Bloom, that billionaire who pushed that, he pushed that uh, girl that couldn't get into the University of Texas, uh, Amy yeah. Fisher versus Texas. She couldn't even get into t- She didn't even have the grades to get it. She didn't make the cutoff, but they still used her as the plaintiff for Fisher, the Fisher case, where they attacked attacking so-called affirmative action. Remember that in the oral arguments for the Fisher case, this is before Scalia went down. Scalia is saying, well, maybe they should go to these black schools, these slower schools that are better shaped to their purpose. Hey, I'm not mad, because remember, Kamala Harris, daddy was on the faculty at Stanford. And if Stanford's policy is the same as most universities, that means his daughter could have gone to Stanford tuition-free. She chose to go to Howard, and that made all the difference. So Scalia, wherever you are, up, down, or nowhere, please understand that these special HBCUs produce a certain kind of person. On and, on. and so this man was one of he was a lauded professor at Stanford University, but his baby went to Howard. So let's be clear. But my point is that that case didn't do what they wanted to do. They eventually let Texas keep their race element in their their decisions. So then Bloom and them go back, except this time they use the trope of Asian Americans. And we know there ain't no such thing as an Asian. They got Southeast Asians, Indians are Asian, like Kamala Harris. You got Chinese, Japanese. What the hell does that even mean? But they use the idea that Asians were underrepresented in admissions, because if you just went on grades and SAT scores, there would be more Asians than even the plurality that's in the UCAL system, and other things, and at Harvard. So then they go back to the Supreme Court, and then last year, the Supreme Court is like, yo, uh, look. No, I'm sorry, no, Massachusetts, is Massachusetts State Court. Michigan. That's where it started. And the judge is like, you know, we want to look at Harvard's admissions policies. So they're looking at Harvard's admissions policies and what is uncovered? Well, we already know. Real affirmative action in this white national society is called whiteness. Meaning what? I mean, I like the way it's a, it's a guy up here at NYU. He's a professor in the School of Business. His name escapes me. You, you, I'm sure you would you know him. He, um, he does a lot of talk about how these uh, universities are basically, he calls them like hedge funds. And then the students are comprised of the children of the investors with a handful of super smart kids from the middle and working class, <laughs> and then some athletes, some other stuff. But these ultra elite schools are basically hedge funds—Hopkins and Harvard and Yale and you know. And so, what he's saying, though, is that we can do education, particularly public education, in this country, a uh, much better. He—he does—he's he, done a couple of uh, recent YouTube videos and podcasts with uh, Andrew Yang. They're always talking about university education and what does it mean. He's calling them hedge funds, this kind of thing. But at any rate. I mention that because what they discovered with the admissions policy of Harvard is you got donors, kids getting in, you got legacies getting in, they they got grades and some of them don't have grades, Jerry Kushner, and then they get in. And so Harvard is like, we use a lot of criteria other than just grades and So anyway, their admissions criteria survived that challenge. But guess what? Last week, the uh, general bar, the toad, has now got the United States Department of Justice to go after Yale. <laughs> it's a Yale, your admissions. Po- women a minute, didn't y'all just challenge Harvard? Bar is like, no, y'all don't understand. When they challenged Harvard, we weren't in place yet. Now we're gonna challenge Yale, not for August 2020. But if y'all win this election, we've been stacking the courts. Do y'all really think this is only about elected politicians? While y'all arguing over voting for somebody, we're stacking the courts. So if you get everybody elected, if they get another four years, if you want to terminate a pregnancy, forget it. If you want to worry about somebody busting your house down and asking you if you got the Quran in here or a Bible, and you say, I got freedom of speech, what the judge say, forget it. In other words, they are pushing this experiment to the point of crisis. And they're going, if they get four more years, they will have the federal judiciary. And then we ain't got to worry about having no conversation. People, I love how people who don't vote or people who say they're not going to participate in the political process, when they get jammed up, the first thing out their mouth is their rights. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, I mean and, and I got a lot of friends like that. Look, I'm a pan-Africanist. I'm like I ain't got no shame. I love that. But I love it. I ain't voting, man. This system, my man. And then they get jammed up. Hey, look we need to get a lawyer because my right, ho, ho, bro. What are you talking about? Oh you now understand that these are just simple tools in a toolbox. so when we look at uh finally you know it's interesting we talk talking about this and i know why we were supposed to talk about beyonce today but actually it kind of ties in a sense because when you don't look at black to,
0: it, don't try to make it no, I'm still, I'm not. because <laughs> you yeah no no oh, yeah, i gotta go you are the king of of bowing and making everything perfect and coming back to it but we we will say Beyoncé, she will get her day
1: We'll say We'll say, we'll, we'll say Beyoncé. We'll, we'll just, just, just know that, I was gonna, all I would say is that anytime celebrities can sway the opinion of people who are maybe less likely to vote, we know that what the real answer to a lot of what we're facing now is, is better education. Things like what we're doing, because look, I ain't saying I'm in the hive. I'm down with Beyonce. I'm down, you know, I'm down with all these young people. I love to see the creativity. Our people, if nothing else, we know how to change the whole world with a song, with a look, of a, with a glance, with a speech we gave on stage. We know how to do that. Style, we invented everything, but style is one of those things. So let me not talk about that. What I'm saying is, if you start basing your political philosophy on who's popular, if Beyonce announced tomorrow she's running for president, that would probably kill Biden-Harris because it would draw... And no, <laughs> you ain't talking you ain't about Kanye. You, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You but, you know, but, the, but the fact of the matter is that if she did that, and this, and I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't any precedent for it. Jessica Gillespie had a pretend campaign for president. Dick Gregory ran president and wrote a book about it, write me in. So these ain't the first black, I mean, entertainers or celebrities to run president, if we make our choices based on who we like, based on some song they did or whether or not they, then we, that shows that our weakness, our structural weaknesses, we've allowed our education system. The same system that Zornier Hurston said needed more resources, but culture wasn't the problem, which is why when you get Brown versus Board of Education, y'all be real careful, because if you get these people start training our children, they may start thinking different and do voices like, yeah, watch, after this, some of them gonna drop out of school, some of them gonna lose interest, why? The thing in your school that you needed was resources, was resources. The thing that you had was some sense of community, <laughs> you know? So we have to think politically and we have to, by thinking politically, mean we have to talk to each other. We gotta have conversations. We have to know the history. So we won't go for the Okie doke because they, they're gonna, you know, it's gonna be a mess in these next few months. It is, it
0: is. So let me just say, thank you. Um, and, you know, I respect. I respect, I respect everybody who has a real opinion that they researched, that they thought about. But we're gonna have to learn how to have these conversations with civility, with respect, without <laughs> emotion, without name calling. And, and we're gonna have to figure out how to come together, even though we're not monolithic. And I, I, this is an example of that, right? We're not monolithic, I get it. But we're gonna have to come around a commonality of humanity, like we care about each other's lives. And so I, I love you. That's an action word. I say that every day on my show, but it's an action yes. word. And if I love you, I want to see you succeed, and I want to see you breathe. I want to see you live. I want to see you grow. And that's what that is. So we, we're going to yes. keep doing this class every Saturday. Thank you for your time. Thank you for Harriet on your chest and your love heart.
1: Love you, sis. Got to represent a sis. Yeah, she,
0: she was out. She came back
1: in to get some more people that's on.
0: right Come <laughs> you know? right. oh and subscribe and give the thumbs up and 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 listen i call this weed in the garden uh, the garden in our comments i'm in the comments not because i want to shut people down but because i want to demonstrate that we can't grow anything if there are weeds in there choking out you know the the positivity in the food you know Absolutely. so if you see people in the comments that are there not because we are trying to do something we could disagree but right. come in with the right attitude, with the right spirit, or else you will be asked to leave, or I will block you. But I, I, I'm inviting everyone to let's tend the garden together, so that one person doesn't have to do it all.
1: Yeah, all right. thanks, that, I, thank you, sis. Especially now because we know that the troll factories and the bot factories are about to ramp it up. So I'm yeah, I, and I know you can spot them and distinguish between them. But thank you for that, because that's oh,
0: listen. Cool. I, I need we we need good food. And and weeds right. weeds are pests. They will choke out your whole entire go- garden. Yes, they. Will, they will. And they keep coming back. So we got to be vigilant. And I'm here for it. I was look for it. I love you. I know you got to run. You got work. I love with you. you too. Yeah, and I got to go talk to somebody. All, all right. Bye, Dr. Carr.
1: I'll see you later, Professor Hunter. Good to see you, dear. Talk to you